right, you should have gotten a handout. If not, they are on the back table there, on the end of the table. And so what we're going to do this week, last week we talked about a little bit of the history and background of church covenants and some of the potential objections that people have to church covenants. And so I want to walk through those in light of our present church covenant, see if it lines up with any of those objections, see if, it, um, uh, if there's any phrases and things that are uh, less clear or ones that are really good in the way that they're worded and kind of move toward that process of evaluating the way that it's worded currently. Just to review, those four criticisms or points of evaluation were, first of all, that church covenants repeat commands already found in Scripture. And number one is really only a problem if we are adding to Scripture or if we see this extra-biblical document as having a higher authority than what God has already said. If we are merely saying, here's what the Bible says and here's a summary of something that the Bible says, we do this all the time. We look at a particular topic in a Sunday school class. We, in our statement of faith, have tried to summarize some key doctrines of the faith. You know, those sorts of things. So I don't see number one necessarily as a problem. The danger is if we see it as more important than what God has said. Secondly, some feel that a church covenant promotes a culture of authoritarian leaders or suspicious fellow members. And this really comes down more to the heart attitude of those who are looking at the church covenant than it does to the church covenant itself. Now, certainly it could be worded in a way that makes it seem like you're peering around corners and uh, lurking at the grocery store or whatever else, trying to catch somebody doing something wrong so you can turn them in. That's not the, the goal of the church covenant. The goal of the church covenant is rather we've made these mutual commitments to support one another, to encourage one another, those sorts of things. Third one is something that we do need to ask ourselves. Does a church covenant or any church document add an extra biblical requirement? An extra biblical requirement might be you have to attend Sunday school. Why would that be an extra-biblical requirement? What's true about Sunday school? Okay, it's a teaching point, but is Sunday school, was it in the Bible? No, this guy in the 1800s came up with the idea. Good idea. Not saying we should get rid of it, but it's not something that's required by the Scriptures. Now, here's the practical reality. If we say we want to do a particular teaching time in the first hour of Sunday, and then a worship service after that, and then an evening service with a little bit different emphasis, I think we should try to participate in the activities of the church, particularly if something important, like the Lord's Table, is only done at one specific service. That being said, if you don't come to Sunday school one week because you're sick or something like that, we wouldn't want the people to look at the church covenant and say, all right, you know, that person's on their way out of the church. And not that we would think that, but there are people that, that sometimes might look at a church covenant if there are extra biblical requirements and see those as a means for tripping other people up or as, you know, well, this isn't in the Bible, I'm not going to do it. And then what good is something that we've committed to do if we're not actually doing it, right? The fourth objection is this idea of making a solemn promise, it may not rise to the level of an oath. Some people see it as doing that. Uh, maybe it just comes to the, the category of this is a solemn commitment, a serious thing that we're intending to do for one another. And along these lines, I think we should, related to number three, make sure that the things that we are committed 
two are reasonable and are doable. So this would be the difference between, and our church covenant doesn't say this now, but if the church covenant says, I am committing to read my Bible twice a day, and we say, I don't know if everyone is at the point where they're ready to commit to reading their Bible twice a day, what would be a more realistic goal that I will... Okay, every day, right? Sure. So, um, just being realistic in the way that things are worded. So, as we go through here, what phrases are good? Are any of them unclear or wordy? And uh, this is another point. Are any of them lacking or not matching up with our current statement of faith? So let me, before we go through here, let me just read to you the paragraphs on the church from our statement of faith real quick and then we'll go through the church covenant kind of uh, section by section. So, statement of faith says, under the doctrine section, God established the church under Christ as a gathering of those who believe the gospel message. Until Christ returns, the church does God's work by making disciples through evangelism and missions, by teaching and maturing those who believe, by doing ministry and enjoying fellowship, and through private and public worship. The church gathers in unity, to be equipped and goes out to do God's work, showing God to the world. And then the section on the church under distinctives of our church. The church consists of those who have believed and are then baptized by immersion, gathering in local assemblies to read the scriptures and pray, being shepherded by pastors and served by deacons, practicing the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's table, caring patiently for members by admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, and helping the weak. So, in light of those statements in our statement of faith, let's look at our church covenant. Starts out, uh, someone just want to read the first paragraph, so I'm not the only one. Someone read the first paragraph there, having been led as we believe. Having been led as we believe by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the confession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Okay, so any objections to that paragraph? Anything that's unclear to you or might be unclear to someone new to the faith? Okay, it is a long sentence. It's kind of a Paul type of sentence, right? Um, not this Paul, Paul the Apostle. Um, so yes, it, it is a long sentence, and uh, so that in that respect, it might be helpful to break it up into smaller parts. Right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Mm hmm I mean, so what are the key ideas from this 
paragraph. One would be belief, right? So we could say belief or faith. And then we have the object of that belief or faith, which is in Jesus Christ. We have the idea of baptism. And then we have this idea of promise before God. And then lastly, the idea of unity. So, would it be possible to express those five ideas a little bit more concisely? Or what would be an example of that? Okay, bulleted list, okay. But if we made it a, a short sentence, could we say something like, Having believed in Jesus Christ and been baptized into the church, we promise before God to walk in unity. I mean, you, you could say something like that, and it would be more concise, but it would get at some of the main ideas. One thing I think a phrase like that would lose, would it would lose a little bit idea of the idea of the, the uh, solemnity. Like when it says, in the presence of God, angels, in this assembly, I mean, that's, that's a pretty sobering kind of statement. And so there's something good. Um, and I suppose the question is, how closely to like a, a vow do we want the church covenant to be versus this is a commitment that we're making that's serious because God hears our commitments, but um, recognizing that it is not a recognizing that it's not a biblical mandate. The Bible doesn't say the church has to covenant together. I do think that we ought to be careful about making it like. This is, a, this is a vow, and if I break it, may God judge me. You know, that kind of thing. We should take it seriously. Don't, don't get me wrong. But um, anyways, so that's, that's something to think about. Any other thoughts on this paragraph before we move on to the next one? Okay. Right. If we want this to be something for <coughs> easy, to, easy to understand, something that's not as foreboding as and as serious as the, the covenant that you Christ and one you want to Right. So that's a good point. So in the morning service, we're going to look at Genesis 12. And Genesis 12 doesn't actually use the word covenant, but when you get over to like Genesis 15, or if you look back to Genesis, is it 8 or 9, where God makes the covenant with Abraham? Um, it's basically, these are promises that God says, I'm going to do this, here's what you're supposed to do. And that's probably my biggest tension with, historically, I don't think the idea of a church covenant is a bad thing. My tension is, if we use, like Eric's pointing out, that language of covenant for something that is not a biblical covenant, are we putting an extra weight on it that it doesn't necessarily deserve? Jim? What about what you just said? It's a promise. That's, that's biblical. Yeah. So you don't have to use the word covenant. Sure. So if we said church commitments, something like that, if we called it that on the website, here's our statement of faith, here's our church commitments. I mean, we're getting at the idea this is something we're planning to do, we intend to do, but we don't say covenant because... Yeah. Okay. So that's something to think about as well. And again, we're not trying to like get it all done this morning. I just want to let's start raising the issues, start thinking through some of them.
Uh, it is interesting to note that there are other churches who use this specific phrasing that we have almost word for word, because uh, I was just spot-checking a few other churches, and I just thought that was really interesting. Um, I think some of it may be um, there was... Um, there were church covenants that were established like in the 1800s. A lot of churches kind of patterned their statement of faith and their church covenants after that, some of the early Baptist churches in that time frame. So that may be part of the reason for the similarity. But I do think that, you know, so just to kind of back up for a second, one of my goals originally with the statement of faith was, can we make it short enough to read through at, for example, the Lord's table? And I think even though it's only three pages now, it might be a bit long, but kind of my vision for what I think might be helpful keeping these ideas before us would be something like, let's take a section of the statement of faith and then also read through our church covenant. Because reading through the section of the church, that took what, like a minute? So we could easily say, here's what we believe about the church, and we say what we believe about the church at the Lord's table in October or whatever else. And so if we read through what we believe, a section of that, and recite our church commitments, promises, whatever we end up calling it, when we take the Lord's table, I think that's a good monthly reminder, what have we committed to? Because as I said before, I feel like a lot of times these things sort of get thrown in a drawer, put on a shelf, set aside. We might glance at them once when we join the church, or if you join as a kid, you might not really even understand it. And I want it said to be this, uh, this to be something that is a part of the life of our church so that we're reminded of it because it's difficult to keep promises that you don't remember, right? So, um, so that's kind of the background for this and, and part of why we're, we're working through it in this way. Uh, any other thoughts on this first paragraph before we move on to the second? <coughs> All right, someone want to read the second one for me? Jim, I think you had your hand up a minute ago. All right. Any words or phrases that are unclear or that you feel should be uh, maybe worded a little bit differently, wording that you think is helpful? I think there's supposed to be um, commas there, and I copied this off the website, and I think maybe some of the formatting might have been lost, so I was just noticing that too. So. So if you notice, the, uh, the semicolons are kind of marking off the separate ideas. So the advancement of the church would be qualified by knowledge, holiness, and comfort. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about prosperity? I think that's another one that someone might... We mean like that it would do well, but some people might say that as that they would get rich off of us, you know? 
So, um, yeah, I think that phrase ought to be reworded. With what phrase? Sorry. Oh. Yeah. Right. When it says sustain worship ordinances, discipline, and doctrine, what is it saying? I don't know if it's even a money thing. I think it's just saying we're going to do it, make them happen. Yeah. Yeah, so maintain might be a better word, or even beyond that, just that practice that we will do, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, what about to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of its ministry? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I, think I would probably qualify it from um, some of what Paul said to Timothy, maybe more from second, than from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 just because 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 was like a one-time. So if, if they're having in mind God loves a cheerful giver, that's the verse that tends to come up in Sunday school, but that's really the one that Paul said was oriented more toward give cheerfully for this one-time offering to help the poor in Jerusalem, which has application to how we give generally in the church, but that's not the main point that it's trying to make. So uh, if we ended up listing verses along with these ideas, I think we would want to be careful which ones we use. Uh, what about the relief of the poor? Okay, sorry, go ahead. Which one are you talking about? It, it seems like it sets it out as one of our main things that we need to be doing is relieving the poor. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, and so we're going to talk about that ironically tonight from James 2. And I think it's interesting in James 2, he does qualify it as a brother or sister who is in need. And Paul says in Galatians, I think, do good to all men, but especially those who are of the household of faith. So yeah, in terms of priority, it would be the preaching of the gospel. A demonstration of our belief of the gospel would be carried out in activities of things like helping those who are in need in the church, and then secondarily, helping those who are outside the church. Paul. Yeah, so... The reality would probably be that that's something we really haven't addressed a great deal. Are you saying in light of the fact that we've said that we'll do this, are we doing it? Yes. Probably not, particularly. Yeah. So there's, there's real quick background on all that. Early 1900s, maybe late 1800s, how many of you have heard of Charles Sheldon's In His Steps? Okay, so that was a popularized novel type form of some of the ideas that kind of tied in with the social gospel. So there are two main philosophies, one extra, one unbiblical and one kind of biblical 
that had to do with people's view of the end times. People said, post-millennialism, we're going to bring in God's kingdom. There was a group of people that said, we're going to bring in God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. Those were the conservative or the more biblical post-millennialists. Then there was a corruption of that into the social gospel where they said, we're going to bring in God's kingdom by transforming society, and we're going to transform society by getting the right people in the office, cleaning up the liquor stores, this, that, and the other thing. Um, this is where people like, I think, um, uh, Billy Sunday would have been possibly influenced by this. Um, I think there were probably points at which postmillennialism and amillennialism intersected in their let's transform society. It cropped up again with the idea of the religious right in politics in the last 50 years, right? The, what is it? The something, the moral majority. Um, so there's been different forms of it crop up. This idea that we're going to fix what's wrong in the world through various social means. Um, so if that's the background that we're coming from, I would say that that would be an unbiblical approach to why we should help the poor, all those sorts of things. If we look at the Old Testament background, um, there were provisions built into the law for people like um, Ruth and Naomi who come back from a distant land, have no one to support them, and shouldn't starve when they come back to the land. So there's provisions in the law for things like gleaning, picking up the leftovers from the harvest, for things like going and um, attaching yourself to someone who could provide for you. I mean, there were, there were provisions in the law to take care of people along those lines. Um, and part of that, I think, had to do with God's concern for those who were in a position of being oppressed or mistreated and that is part of what Israel is later condemned for. You had no concern for the poor. You had no justice for those who were being taken advantage of, all those sorts of things. So sometimes we've shied away from those sorts of ideas because we feel like if I go down that path, I'm going to stop preaching the gospel and only start doing all the things that all these celebrities and everybody else is doing, clean water in foreign countries and you know, opening up homeless shelters, all those sorts of things. Um, so we say something like, um, the service to the community as far as spreading, as a means of spreading the gospel. Okay. All right. Sure. Okay. Good. Uh, so, to answer your question, Paul, and move it from what have we done to what could we do, I was talking with uh, Pastor Dwight Schultz over at First of Sterling Heights, and there's a couple other of the churches in the area that have been connected. There's a, there's a, a women and children's shelter in, I believe, Pontiac that they have supported, and I think even though that would be a, a kind of a parachurch organization, I think the practical reality is we don't have the facilities, the staffing, the budget to directly implement something like that ourselves at this point. But 
would that be a means of accomplishing at least the original intent of what a phrase like that got at? I think so, yes. And then, um, yeah. So, and some of it comes down to where does this stand in priority, like Eric was getting at. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Or is that, I mean, really spreading the gospel. Right. Spreading the gospel throughout nations, we'll never do that. Right. But we can support missionaries as, you know, as we have the means to do so. Right. Sure. But then by spreading the gospel locally, mm -hmm. that's what we're not talking about here. We're not spreading the gospel locally. Yeah. Then you, all these other things fall under that. Right. You do that by. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So those are some good thoughts for me to think about, for us to think about. How are those things to be structured? What's the order of priority? Should some of them be, be, uh, be taken out? Uh, so, go back to the beginning of the paragraph, because this is something I think we skipped over a little bit, but I like the idea. I just wonder if we could phrase it a little more concisely. It says, forsake the paths of sin and walk in the ways of holiness. I mean, I like that idea from the perspective of Proverbs really emphasizes there's a way of wisdom and a way of foolishness, and part of the Christian life is setting aside the one and, and pursuing the other, this idea that there are you know, two ways to live and so forth. So, um, it might be helpful to incorporate something of that idea of the contrast between the old and the new way of life. Uh, we do talk about it in our statement of faith with regard to salvation. A person who has turned to God in faith continues to repent of sinful ways of thinking, wanting, and doing as he grows in obedience to God's commands by the help of the Spirit. In this way, God's people become more and more like their Savior and show what God is like to the rest of the world. So, with regard to that, or the, the secondary one, ABC Distinct, is that Christian life is a process of putting off sin and putting on holiness. It might be helpful to pull some of that kind of language in here about the idea of we are collectively growing in sanctification and we are helping one another in that process. Whether it's in this paragraph or whether it's in, a, if we break it down into more shorter paragraphs, that's a, neither here nor there. But I think that that is a helpful idea that's in the present one. So, Yeah. It seems like the third paragraph is almost a definition of what we mean by walking pursuing Where we engage to that one? Okay. All right, how do you guys feel about the word engage? So I think, I think when I hear that, I think, Millie, you have a thought? I have all kinds of thoughts. Okay, share, share one of them with us. No, engage is good. Yeah. I feel like it's a little bit more of an archaic word, like I'm going to engage a coach for transporting me across the land. What's that? Okay, right, sure. 
And what we're trying to get at here is the idea of we promise or we commit. So I think one of those strive. words. Okay, strive. Okay, that could be a that could be a possible alternative. Someone want to read the third paragraph, kind of as we move into that. All right. All right, so let's kind of start at the beginning before we drop down to the bottom. Is there a biblical mandate to maintain family and personal devotions, like the concept of devotions? Okay. Is there a better word than devotions to describe it possibly? Yeah. Okay. I guess I would be happier if I saw us defining that a little bit more like we are committing to hear or to receive or to read, uh, to meditate on, to apply God, you know, those sorts of ideas, kind of like what we were talking through in the Habits of Grace book, simply because I think sometimes people see devotions and they think of one of the books you might get in the mail that's a Bible verse and a few brief comments, and I've checked the box for that and everything's good, and we should be committing to a whole lot more than just that. So I agree it's a very succinct word, Eric. I just feel like it should be a little bit more... I feel like in our day and age, people read devotions and they see it as a very low-level commitment. Right. <coughs> Yeah. No, no, I agree. I'm just saying when people hear the word devotions, they don't hear devote. Like, you may hear that, but I'm saying your average person that would walk in off the street maybe is a new person being part of the church. Right. And not that our daily bread is automatically wrong, but we should eventually be striving to do more than just reading a paragraph and a verse a day. So. Sure. Yeah? Yeah, okay. How about the phrase, religiously educate our children? So when I, read, when I read that, I hear you have to put your kids in a Christian school, which is not what they meant, I'm sure. What I think might be better to say would be something like teach your kids the Bible, right? Because I think that's something we ought to commit to do. Okay. I know, I know. Um, what's that? Yeah, so seek the salvation of our acquaintances. Any objections or concerns with that phrase? Should we only seek the salvation of our acquaintances? I'm just, I'm, I'm not, 
trying to be overly difficult, but sure. Right, okay. So when I, again, and this could just be me, but when I hear acquaintances, I think like people I met on the street. Right. And so maybe if we made it broader and be like those around us, I mean this idea of who is my neighbor, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. But this is another of those things where the word has changed over time. Acquaintances used to mean everybody you know around you, and now it's like people that you cross paths with once at the gas station, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that's why I was thinking if we say those around us, then it gets a... Right. Yep. All right. To walk circumspectly in the world. Yeah. It is a beautiful world, but what does it mean? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to deportment in a minute. What would be a better word than circumspectly, just because that's more of a King James word that we don't use today? So if I, just going through it in my mind, I think probably one of the more common equivalents might be something like either faithfully or carefully. I mean, circumspectly, like you're walking, you're watching your steps, you're thinking about what you're doing, and I'd have to look up the dictionary definition to make sure that that is the sense of it currently. So, yeah, that's why I was thinking, you know, faithfully. I mean, there's a, it's, you know. Yeah. We could say wisely. I mean, wisely would get at it more, maybe. Because wisely would get in the idea that it's not just careful, like, I'm watching out for myself, but that it's walking according to what would honor God. That's a longer word. Sure. Well, that would almost, that would, that would cover that whole thing all the way up to Sure. Okay. So faithful in our engagements, what was that getting at? <laughs> Either keep your promises or work hard, work with integrity, something along those lines. Same thing along deportment is the way that you act. Being exemplary in it would be Basically, that you have integrity or you're without, without reproach. Um, what's the other word? Uh, it's in 1 Timothy 3. Um, I should look at it. Do, 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 do. Okay, Titus 1 says, without, above reproach. I mean, it's the same kind of idea. Yeah, and some of it's the idea of honor. 
Yeah, so uh, something along those lines would probably get at it fairly well. Um, to avoid tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger. So, what does it mean by tattling? Okay. Yeah, that's probably what it's getting at. We usually think of tattling as like something little kids do, but I think the idea is probably more like gossip, which backbiting would kind of be probably slander as opposed to gossip, although it would be connected closely. Right. Excessive anger. Um, Right. <laughs> right. So this is something where it would either be helpful to have the verse or perhaps to remove the phrase because it's... And, and this is the thing. Like, I think a lot of the things in this paragraph are really good. I also think I don't know that we necessarily have to spell every last thing out. That's, that's kind of the tension. We had it with the statement of faith. We're having it with this as well. How much do we say? How much do we not say? And, and, and teach as we go on. So if there's a way to summarize, like Paul said, you know, walk wisely according to the Bible in the world, you know, something like that, that sums up like five of these phrases, then I think that would be a good, good thing to do. All right, let's look at the next one. And this may be as far as we get today, just because this is a controversial one. Is it a biblical mandate to abstain from the sale, manufacture, or use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage? Right. Yeah. So, just, just so you know where I'm coming from, I was surveying some of the passages in Scripture on wine this morning, and Scripture lays out somewhat of a mixed perspective on alcohol from this perspective. Wine, we should probably say, since that's the word that's used. It says things like, in the King James language, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. He that is controlled by them is not wise. It also talks about wine in connection with joy. For example, Jesus turns the water into wine at the Feast of Cana of Galilee. People say, well, that wasn't at all intoxicating. But the context where it says they usually bring out the good stuff first and the poor stuff later just kind of argues against that. And um, uh just some of the other statements in that passage, I, d I don't think that you can bear out a perspective that says the only thing that is mentioned in the Bible is grape juice that is unfermented. Now, are we talking 180 proof something or other that's like almost pure alcohol? No. I don't think we are. Right. So, yes. Sure. 
Right, sure. Or at the most, I would imagine, you know, because they were used to drinking <coughs> quality. It would have been more like a grapefruit kind of a quality of wine rather than like a strong fermented kind of wine. Sure. So the emphasis is not on alcohol so much. Yeah. So, and I, you know, I, I would defer to their judgment on that from the perspective of them probably having studied it more. That having said, been said, we just looked at Noah and it said he made wine and got drunk. So, so that raises the question, did he not mix it with water? Did he uh, just drink a whole lot of it? You know, the, the, so I think of, to, in response to that, I would say their practices probably changed and evolved over time. And knowing the Pharisees and some of the religious leaders, it would not surprise me if they, in a desire to avoid certain things, set up a whole series of regulations to try to avoid a particular sin. Right? So, I mean, I think that would be consistent with their character. And this is something I'd have to study more, the historical context and all that. Coming back to the main point. Yeah, Jim. I just got a question. I mean, it, it talks about alcohol, but nowadays we got, what about our opiate problem? Sure. Yeah. I think we've gone way beyond just alcohol. So there, there's... Right. I think the language here is Yeah. So if we had to say what is the core biblical concern connected with these things? Okay. Yeah. Or even the idea of self control, right? So is it wrong to eat pizza? No. Is it wrong to sit down and eat five pizzas? Probably. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking this one, sure. Right. But again, what we have here is a statement that says, you can't eat pizza, or you can't eat pizza from Green Lantern if it's the extra large because that's gluttony. Right, but we don't need to have that specific of a statement. What we need, I think, is a broader statement with regard to self-control, honoring God with our bodies, you've been bought with a price, that sort of idea. So I think that's what we need to get at. And some people will then say, well, if you remove that statement, everybody's going to go out and start partying and getting drunk. But the response to that would be, if something's laid out in Scripture as a sin, our job is to teach what is and isn't a sin, not to add things to the Bible that aren't sins in an effort to, like the Pharisees, keep moving ourselves further and further away. And then we arrive at a point where we're like, yeah, we're following these things really well, but we're not doing the main things the Bible says to do, which is what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. So, um, and, and there's two extremes. One is to say, here's what the Bible says. Let's get as far away from the sin as possible. And then there's the other attitude that says, here's what the Bible says. Let's try to inch as close to it as possible, but not cross the line. Both of those are wrong line sets, right? Oh, yep. Hi there. Good morning. All right, well, come on in. Good to have you. All right, well, we're glad to have you. So we'll pick this up next week on the last two paragraphs, have some more discussion on it, maybe look at it in contrast to some other statements, not statements of faith, some other church covenants. Uh, but I think it's hopefully been a helpful discussion this morning. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to consider the things that you would expect of us, not in a legalistic kind of way, not in a law-breaking kind of way, but having the biblical balance of saying, here's what God has said, help us to do it with one another for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.